Hello, and welcome to Nostalgia Arcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we'll look back on the movies, TV, games, people, and phenomena that we still love talking about all these years later, and ask ourselves why these bits of pop culture still enchant us today. This week, we'll be revisiting... There's some women out there can lay waste to hordes of men by the time they're 21. One bat of the eye, one smile at a stupid joke, and the guy's brain goes soft as yesterday's ice cream. Thing is, that kind of beauty is like a gun with a hair trigger. You gotta be real careful how you handle it. Or someone's liable to end up dead. Los Angeles. The City of Angels. The Windy Easy. This is a place where dreams are made and dreams are broken. It's also the setting of our topic for today, the Showtime anthology noir series, Fallen Angels. I'm really excited to talk about this because this is the first topic for the show that not only did I not have experience with, I had never even heard of before our guest brought it to our attention. Uh, This is is a forgotten one, but one I think that is definitely worth revisiting because there's really nothing like it. But I'm not doing it alone. I've got a partner here uh, with me today, my, uh, my man Joe Friday. He is a performing member with uh, Freestyle Love Supreme. He is, can be heard on his own wonderful podcast, Brothers from Another Planet. And he also performs, of course, uh, you can catch him on NBC's uh, The Amber Ruffin Show. So please welcome Tarek Davis. Oh, what's up, buddy? It's good to be back. Yeah, man, it's good to talk to you. I, I'm so excited that you picked this because this was so out of the blue. It normally... Yeah, normally we start by talking about our nostalgic memories of it. So I'll go first, zero, and (laughs) I'll throw it to you. Uh, Tell me why you picked this. This is so cool. Yeah, my nostalgic memories of it are close to zero. I have a, we didn't have Showtime growing up. And so, you know, I saw an episode, you know, it's like the, this was in the mid 90s. So it was like, you know, I'm in middle school. I think when I first saw an episode and it was like, Oh, Showtime. And if you are a kid of a, if you're an adult of a certain age, Showtime, HBO and Showtime were special things. You know, kids don't appreciate today because you got Netflix and streaming and TikTok and you can get anything you want. But then if you were a teenage boy whose body was raging with all kinds of hormones, you knew um, if you could get away from parents and get with a friend and watch. Uh, who had cable and could watch HBO at a certain time or watch Showtime, which you know, uh, which I think would turn at like midnight to what you know, to Cinemax, but we called it Skinemax. You were in for like some naughty treats, right? So I remember hanging out at one of my close friends' house who did have Showtime, and I saw an episode of Fallen Angels, and I was like, what is this? And that was kind of, and I remember enjoying the episode and was like, you know, I remember 
watching Tales from the Crypt at the time, and anthology shows in the 90s were huge. And I remember being a huge fan of Tales from the Crypt and thinking that's what this show was going to be. But it was just, it was similar, but it was just like in the noir space. And I was like, oh. And then it left my memory for the rest of my adult life up until recently. Um, where I rediscovered it and kind of, and like, you know, exploded that memory of like, you know, the 90s and spending the night at my friend's house and us thinking we were being like, you know, breaking the law by watching Showtime. And I just started being a detective and investigating the show and finding out like, wait a minute, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Gary Oldman, Christopher Lloyd, Alan Rickman, Laura Dern, Bonnie Bedelia, Danny Glover. Giancarlo Esposito, Mill Dunn, like it was the list of talent went on and on. And then I found that you can get all the episodes except for the golden episode, which we'll talk about later. But you can get all the episodes, you can find all the episodes streaming on YouTube. And I've kind being a noir fanatic myself, I kind of just went down a splendid rabbit hole and now my uh, mythic uh, Holy Grail quest is to find that golden episode. You know, you touched on sort of my very similar memories of HBO and Showtime, which is that th- there was forbidden fruit to be found there. And not just titties, but <laughs> other kinds of forbidden fruit. Um, but like, yeah, th- you, you would always go to whatever friend's house would be a little more permissive than your parents. So... I can't remember if we had HBO. I don't think we did at the time. But definitely there was a a friend I would go to their house. This is where I would get away with watching like R-rated horror movies I wasn't supposed to see. Like sleepovers there were always a little more fun because we could see this stuff. And so when you suggested it, I didn't remember this show. But my my immediate thought was, oh, this is going to be kind of like Red Shoe Diaries. Like it's an also ran for that, which was if. If you don't know, that was another uh, anthology-type show on Showtime, but was more geared towards romance. And so I was very pleasantly surprised to to find this thing on YouTube and realize, oh, they, they are doing a noir anthology. Because, I mean, noir as a genre is so, so mostly dead um, by this point. You know, it was cool to see. It was really cool to see. And you can tell every episode is a labor of love from both behind and in front of the camera you can tell like these are i don't know my you know the episodes that i picked out for you like i love confidential op with you could you could just see how much fun everyone is having in that episode um to me it comes across like seeing like oh christopher lloyd gets to be the lead right and like as opposed to you know he's typically he's an amazing character actor but he's typically you know, reserved for character roles and side characters and characters aside. And here he is being the heavy and wearing the fedora and jumping out of windows. And it's just like, he's having a ball and I'm having a ball because he's having a ball and seeing, you know, and watching other episodes, seeing Tom Hanks play against type and his episode. And it's just like, Oh, uh, and knowing that Tom Cruise directed an episode. And it's just like, yeah, these guys, you know, I imagine we were in the same boat. 
when you find yourself in the media space, you're a, fine, you're a fan of media. You're a fan of genre. You're a fan of like horror, romance. And these actors and writers and directors at, the, at that time were no different. And so, yeah, it's just like, you know, oh, I, we get to, we have the sandbox of costumes and sets and timepieces and dialogue. Yeah, it's it's a good time. You know, I, I've heard this said about, uh, you know, very early Saturday Night Live in the 70s, which was that they felt like people just sort of handed them a bunch of cameras and money and time and no one was looking over their shoulder to tell them what to do. So they it allowed them to be really inventive. And this has sort of that same spirit of like, it feels like the, the amount of talent involved on a channel that no one was watching, there was a sense of like, yeah, we can make whatever the fuck we want. And they were having so much fun doing it. I mean, that's how we felt on the Amber Ruffin show. It was, we felt like kids in a basement, you know, filled with cameras. And um, yeah, let's make a show before the parents, our parents get here. Uh, and that vibe is definitely in this show as well. Yeah, and the uh, and as you mentioned, the enormous amount of talent. Like, if you go on the Wikipedia page and look at who's involved in all of these episodes, and uh, you you just rattle off a list of like what eight or nine names, and that's maybe a quarter of them. There's so many famous people involved in this, or people who would go on to be famous as well. That it's sort of staggering. It's like, oh, there's. Michael Rooker, like I, I, you know, that Yondu from the MCU. Like, there's so many people, just one after the other. Yeah, uh, John C. Riley, <laughs> Gary Busey, uh, who's actually really good. You know, we forget Gary Busey was a really good actor uh, before he became kind of like the, an internet meme. You know. Now, did you have any experience with noir leading up to this? I did. I mean, I, I mean, I made a beginning of the pandemic i made a a webcomic that you can find on my instagram called apple city that was my homage to dick tracy and like the pulp serial comic books uh of that era you know and i have my detective amsterdam samson and he's got the fedora and the trench coat and um all these colorful characters in this fictional town of apple city and like you know if I've been a fan of the genre and detectives as long as I can remember. Like, I remember waiting in the longest line with my parents uh, so they can take me to see Dick Tracy. I remember dressing up like, here's a deep cut, dressing like for Halloween, like Darkman, which was a Sam Raimi homage to the shadow. Um, You know, and I had the fedora and the bandages and. And yeah, I, you know, I, I love, you know, Sherlock Holmes isn't noir, but was my, you know, uh, I had a bunch of Sherlock Holmes like books as a kid that kind of like got me to the detective genre. And then, you know, reading about, you know, Mickey Spillane's My Camera. And uh, there was an HBO show, speaking of anthology shows, that I used to watch with my dad when I was really small, uh, the Philip Marlowe show. Philip Marlowe, Private Eye, starring Powers Booth. And I used to love that show. And I couldn't, at that time, I probably couldn't articulate and tell you why. But it's just, there's something about, for me, there was always a huge draw about a character, about the the stereotypical settings of Private Eye with the frosted glass window with his name on it and his office and he's weary and someone comes in and 
oh, what is it now? And, you know, I, I've, I fell deep in love with that. And I think a lot of that is just like, you know, my dad was really cool and we watched old films and let me watch stuff with him and uh, kind of shared his love and then it became one of my loves, you know. I love that. I, You know, my uh, exposure to, to noir was probably more on the comedy side at first where I think maybe the first noir thing I probably ever saw were these Calvin and Hobbes strips where he would be Tracer Bullet and yeah, or things like, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? That and then the Dick Tracy movie with Warren Beatty, like these things were kind of taking uh, noir genres, putting them through a Looney Tunes kind of filter and giving them to you. And it wasn't until I was a little older that I, you know, I would get rid of that uh, allergy that most kids have to black and white movies and say, all right, I need to explore this. I need to learn a little more. I'd go watch like the Maltese Falcon, things like that. And then I got kind of a huge injection of it in law school of all places because while I was there, I had to get in, you know, tried to get an internship places. And I wound up doing an internship out of all places, random ass places, uh, a, the shell company that is basically RKO Pictures now. And my job there as a law student was to work on these long, complicated copyright chains of title because basically they were trying to figure out what rights do we still own to what and the other part of it that was the fun part that I got to participate in is that they what they were trying to do is figure out what do we own that we can option for a remake. So we'd get a sign like, hey, here's this random movie that no one's seen since 1937. Go watch it and tell us what you think. And so, you know, a lot of like noir, you know, forgotten noir stuff from that era, uh, a lot of racist stuff from that era that needs to stay there. Um, but a lot of a lot of worthwhile, interesting movies, too. No, absolutely. Um, you mentioned Maltese Falcon. Like, they're... Uh, I mean, we we can go down that route. I, I, I recently uh, discovered a interesting actual fact about the inspiration uh, to the character Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. But, yeah, there are... I'm, I'm also fortunate that I didn't have an... I didn't have an allergy to black and white films growing up. So, you know, I remember thinking, you know, like the, the you bring up the Looney Tunes aspect of it and you know, I'm realizing in retrospect at this moment just like how much of my education and sensibilities today are because of Looney Tunes. Um <laughs> but, you know, with that like, you know, I would put with, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Dick Tracy, Batman, the 89 Batman film that came out was very much like, you know, Tim Burton's Art Deco, dark, like, that is a noir film. Yeah. And the animated series that follows it even more so. Exactly. And so, you know, that all came out at such a, you know, formative time for me. You know, so 89, I'm like 10 years old. And I thought Batman was the coolest, you know, the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And, you know, the soundtrack and everything about it. And then I remember, like, the thing that really hooked me, uh, I lived in, I grew up in New Jersey, and so, you know, we had a Six Flags, or we called it Great Adventure, and there was the Batman roller coaster. And I remember it was, you know, these are the days before the internet, this is 1989, this is, 
roller coasters were a big deal. I don't know, if, like, I don't know how young your learner, uh, your your listener base is, but like to try to get across this, how big a deal one the Batman movie was, and two, how big like an event like oh man, there's a Batman roller coaster. I remember going to Six Flags. Um, my parents took me and my friends, and we're in line. And like they're playing the the Batman theme that da 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 da, and it was the longest line. Basically, went through the whole park. But as you got closer to the ride, you know they set up, you know the the building to look like Art Gotham, and you know uh, with exposed brick and you know uh, rusted pipes. And I just remember being like, I don't want to leave here. I love this gritty, like, faux city kind of thing that they were doing, Looney Tunes inspired. And that kind of, with the Batman animated series, it just kind of propelled this passion that never stopped of like, all right, let me revisit um, Maltese Falcon. Let me check out, what is this uh, movie, Murder My Sweet? What is this movie, Laura? What is this movie, Asphalt Jungle? What are these movies... You know, because I feel like with the Batman animated series, they were, and you know, again, I credit my dad watching stuff with me. And like, if you watch the Batman animated series, like, um, there's, you know, they would draw characters to look like actors from past movies. And like, I remember we're watching one and it was like, oh, that guy looks, and my dad's like, they drew Lee Marvin. And I'm like, who's Lee Marvin? And then we're watching The Dirty Dozen. And then we're watching all of his movies and Who Shot Liberty Vance. And, like, it just kind of propelled not just a passion for film um, and film genre, but, like, it definitely, like, uh, the noir genre was definitely one of the bigger hooks into me. Well, I think one thing that the noir genre really injects into pop culture is a sort of somber sad bleakness like the way they those stories often end you know the the good guys will win in the end but it's not like a total you know victory it's not star wars with everyone wearing their medals and being happy they blew up the death star like they're it's a a uh you know a a detente at best right it's chinatown jake (laughs) right that's the that's a great example absolutely yeah yeah that kind of ending and that's not even like the good noir ending. That's a pretty sad one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was dark. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and we haven't talked about this aspect of the show, which I think is really cool is that all of the episodes are adaptations of pre-existing noir short stories by major writers in the genre. So you've got stuff that's from Mickey Spillane and Dashiell Hammett and um, uh, Mosley, like all of these luminaries. Yeah. Uh, giving you all their best stuff. It's, it's really cool. So they have all of those kinds of like bittersweet, sad, you know, endings that I think make the noir genre so special. Yeah. The, the, and you, and like, they're these amazing, like you can have your, your tragic, you know, there's an episode, um, forgetting Peter Gallagher, I think is in one episode with John C. Riley and, uh, and like that one, that's one of the, that ending is one of the lighter, more hopeful endings, but he goes through it. And I remember, I can't remember when it was, but I remember getting like a guide of the type of noir hero. 
and you got your sour knight, right? Which is which fits like the archetype of most archetypical PI detectives, like you know Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, uh, Mike Hammer. Like they're wizened, they're cynical, but inside they're really true blue, heroic uh, heroes who live by a code. And then you got your you know your uh, your heroes who are just fully on corrupt. Your rotten hero who is who maybe looks good on the outside, and like there's a Gary Oldman episode, and you're like, you know, this guy. You know, it reminded that his episode reminded me of um, Angel Heart with Mickey Rourke. If you remember that movie, which is also a noir film set in New Orleans, came out in the '80s, and really disturbing, dark ending. The detective. You know, and it, it gets into the occult, and Robert De Niro plays the devil, and you find out, like, you know, spoiler alert, came out in the 80s, guys, that the detective, the hero you've been following all along, he's been chasing himself, and he's the murderer. And the film ends basically with him going to hell, <laughs> like, taking mm-hmm. this never ending elevator that goes down, and you just see his face contemplating that he's a monster. And I remember seeing that when I was a kid. And I was just like, you know, noir is very much like horror in that way of like, it grabs you. And, you know, look, and I, Star Wars grabbed me too. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. But there's something about that. Oh, the good guy didn't, like, there's something about seeing that as a kid that, you know, I'm still contending with it as an adult of like, oh, right, right. The world, the world isn't filled with grace you know (laughs) it's not filled with equal justice and balance all the time yeah you know it's it's a i think it's an important thing that at some point you're gonna encounter a narrative where yeah the good guys don't win or the good guy maybe isn't even all that good to begin with and noir really pushes that and this show i think uh i didn't watch all the episodes but certainly all the ones i watched felt like that like you feel like you know this is a bad world filled with pretty much all bad people for the most part mm-hmm. and we you know you don't expect a happy ending the best you can hope for is you know at least at least the bad guys get a bad ending and the good guys have a middling to bad ending right 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 you know or people you know a lot of a big lesson in a lot of noirs is like you know uh it's like hamlet you know, uh, or Macbeth, I'm sorry, not Hamlet, uh, Macbeth, but even Hamlet, like plotting always gets the person, the plotter in the end. Like, you know, the, you know, it's never good to plot. It's never rarely do, you know, uh, the schemes work out for the schemer and like, you know, greed being like a huge theme and, you know, who do you trust? And so many of these people are in desperate situations and they're just trying to survive. And, you know, I feel like the ultimate tale of so many noirs, it's like, well, if you lose your morality, you've lost everything. And they kind of take us down that dark path. And we see that tale again and again. And there's something about it that brings us back for more. (laughs) It's like really. Yeah. Well, and you package it with a cool mystery to go with it. Right. It's like the actual like nuts and bolts of the whodunit are often, you know, a lot to keep you in there. And this show, I think, did a really good job of combining both of those. Yeah. Um, I really liked, like, I think that first episode with Gary Oldman, 
is a great example of that. So the the premise is that Gary Oldman is investigating this murder, and the the twist is, of course, that he is the murderer. And I thought when I watched it that they were about to go for this like fight clubby twist of like, oh, he's dissociated and he doesn't remember. I'm like, well, I've seen that a few times now. Right. And instead they came up with something cleverer, which was that he he knew the whole time he was just trying to figure out what the authorities knew to try and avoid getting caught. And uh, I really like that. That was neat. Yeah. And it's a written, you know, it's. It's peak Gary Oldman, you know. It's it's he's. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he's done Dracula yet or the. I think it's before the Professional, but yeah, it's a young. You know, uh, I was enjoying the episode. I'm just like, when's he gonna ramp up? When's he gonna? There he is, and like, you know, <laughs> there he is. There he is. Everyone, you know, he he does that. You know, he's such an amazing actor. Um, Lois, we need to talk. What did she tell you, Lois? Huh? What did she tell you? I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking she about, told, huh? She told you she was going to come back to me. Am I right? Am I right? She didn't say anything. Come on, Lois! Come on, you two were best friends. The last what she said would tell What? Lois will know! What the hell's going on in here? Hey! She's busy! I, I didn't want you to go after her. Why? Because of me? Don't you get it? I don't know what she was. But I what she was. I'm always going to love her. She's dead! I'm still married to her! I'm calling the Hey! Fuck you! Fuck you! It's the fact that Nicolas Cage isn't in Fallen Angels is kind of a crime. You know, we need <laughs> Nicolas Cage screaming at the top of his lungs and just being weird and, um, you know. But anyway, uh, I digress. Yeah, I was say, just watch, oh, is it uh, Vampire's Kiss after this when you're, you're set? Yeah. Uh, he's noir Spider-Man, so he's noir something. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. it works. Uh, and he's amazing mm-hmm. as Noir Spider-Man. Uh, the yeah. character stole the movie for me. You know, one thing I really liked about this is that the setting is, its for the most part, it's all very limited between, like, it's post-war 40s Los Angeles. Right. Which I think the post-war, you know, 45 to 50 era is fairly unexplored territory. Yeah. In media um anything from the 40s tends to be pretty world war ii focused yeah uh, i was just I, I think what's fascinating about so when you reference like the how all the episodes have their basis in established pulps and of some of the great writers like dashiell hammett raymond chandler uh walter mosley a lot of those with the exception of walter mosley who is still writing and a current kind of hero of pulp and highly recommend the Ezekiel Rollins series if y'all haven't read that uh or check out the film Devil in the Blue Dress I mean it's one of my favorites anyway I read the book yeah it's great uh watch the movie like it's the fact that they didn't make more is it's a huge crime against cinema anyway I what I was gonna say was that like you know all of these 
stories in Fallen Angels, uh, the majority of them, the whole noir thing comes out of post-World War One, And so you're getting this kind of cynical, I feel like, you know, the writers, they were writing in like the, uh, I think of the magazine, the pulp magazine in the, in the 20s was called um, Black Mask. And that's where Confidential Op would show up. And, you know, um, pre like Sam Spade, pre Philip Marlowe, but like the beginnings of the detective characters, there it all kind of springs out of post the Great War. And people are starting to, the rose-colored glasses of America are starting to get a little dusty. And definitely they are full of dust by, like, post-World War II. And the type of noir I feel like you get post-World War II that this series highlights, like you said, it's so fascinating about, like, people are coming home from the war and... Not just wondering what happened and what's next, but who the hell, what, who am I? What is this? Like, and it's, it's rife for so many stories of the kind of desperation and, and, and sour endings that we were talking about. Um, you know, people like, yeah, I want my piece of the American dream. I want my slice of the American apple pie. And I'll get it by any means necessary. Like, yeah, you can't tell those stories, like, um, without the trauma of war, unfortunately, I don't think, that have that same kind of potency. Yeah. I also think there's something to the fact that they're they're so limited in their crime-solving tools, right? Now, I'm not going to say sit here and say our modern police are beyond reproach, but they certainly have access to... You know, things you can do with, you know, DNA and, you know, testing people for various things. You know, you can do a lot more to try and solve a crime and make sure you get the right person. Certainly compared to 1947, where it's like, hey, chief, I got a hunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, did he confess yet? That, no, think, he says he's in Get a confession out of him. <laughs> like, you know. Right. Just beat a guy till he confesses. Like there, or it's like you have to literally stumble upon, you know, a piece of fabric under a chair and go, "Hey, what's this doing here?" Right, a, a true Sherlock Holmesian clue, and because of that, yeah. And I was going to say, I wonder. I, I know because you, you know, you practice law. I wonder, like, you know, I grew, I love Columbo, uh, and and Hercule Poirot, and a lot of these detectives. But I'm like, did they really catch the guy, or like, you know, like the the story ends when they figure out who did it? But I'm like, would that hold up in court? Would that like is that evidence actually going to, you know, um, convince a jury? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, back then, who the hell knows? I, you know, I I'm lucky I practice law when I do, and I don't do criminal law, right. so I'm not, I don't have to worry about it. But like, yeah, like you you watch all these things, and it it adds to the murkiness, right? Of like, well, I don't really know that this guy did it. Like in the the Christopher Lloyd episode, they're talking about how he finds this clue in a kitchen, and the, and his deduction is well, no man would hide this clue in a kitchen because a woman is going to look there and find it as if men don't cook like they would never access it's it's a very like women are in the kitchen that's what they do and that is a 
get, that is pr- portrayed as a normal ass deduction. So what do you make of it? Suicide? I know, I don't like it either. That flypaper was hidden behind the kitchen stove. Nobody would try to hide something from a woman in her own kitchen. But the woman might hide it there. True. If Sue had the flypaper, she got it from Joe. Maybe they were scared to leave Babe alive, so they meant to use it on him when Sue left. When I started talking to Holy Joe about murder, he thought I was talking about Babe. He was surprised it was Sue's dead. But he was even more surprised when he saw Babe alive. What about Sue? She died cursing Joe. She knew she was poisoned, but she didn't want to see a doctor. Maybe she figured out that Babe didn't care about her, and suicide was the only way out. Now, I can't figure Babe as a poisoner. He's too rough. What about the month-old arsenic in her hair? Hmm? I'm going around in circles here. Very, it's very, uh, and they play it, you know, and that's the end of the episode. Um, that's near the end, yeah. Uh, but it, it's very funny when they, you know, and sitting across from Christopher Lloyd is Darren McGavin, you know, who, uh, I was, you know, Kolchak the Night Stalker or the old man from the Christmas story, uh, depending on what your favorite is. But like, it's a very funny. Um, moment with these two guys they're just like oh yeah woman yeah and like the only woman's in the kitchen uh, would boil that kind of poison <laughs> you know and like it's like yeah guys this this story was written at a certain time and it takes place <laughs> at a certain time um and there's a kind of, I feel like there's a little bit of a wink and nod just like this is ridiculous but we're having a ball in this in this sandbox so shrug shoulders <laughs> and grass yes. i i like that story so that's a that's one is called uh fly paper yeah and that's another one where again the the detective takes a route that's very very circuitous to wind up back at the beginning and figure out oh no she there wasn't a murderer she accidentally killed herself yeah. And yeah. And again the clue that busted open is the the flypaper which has arsenic in it has been she's been boiling it and administering it to herself in the hopes of building up an immunity to it based on what she read in the Count of Monte Cristo uh and which of course is don't believe everything you read. Don't believe everything you read, but I will um if you'll allow me. Uh the Count of Monte mm-hmm. Cristo um reminds me of what I said earlier. You know, if you know the Count of Monte Cristo was written by Alex Dumas, whose father uh, was a great black general in the French army, um, also named Alex Dumas. Um, you know, most people like it's it's known history, but I don't know how known that like the writer of those books, uh, Three Musketeers, Man in the Iron Mask, Count of Monte Cristo, was a black man, right? And so something I discovered recently, you know, as a noir fanatic, I don't know how I stumbled across it, but I found out that there was a um, actual private investigator in the 1920s L.A., um, and he was the first black private investigator in L.A. 
to get his license apparently that's the that's the story about him it's still it's not unproven like he he does he seems to be the they can't tell if there were other black private guest investigators but this guy sam marlowe was his name and this is 1920s los angeles he's a real private investigator he's also an actor and he's like being he's one of the extras in like the king kong movie like you know and the you talked about some of that racist stuff that's going on but black actors had to get you know get in where they could get in oh i know like i said i gotta watch a lot of step and fetch it stuff believe oh me. i believe i it's believe not it. good no it's terrible <laughs> but this character yeah. this uh this real person sam marlowe was a fan of the black mask uh pulp magazine where confidential op and flypaper would show up and dashwell hammett and raymond chandler would write their noir stories and he was a fan of them but he wrote them back because he, he was like hey uh you guys got some of the details wrong about how people really how these private investigators work let me tell you how it really is and he struck up a friendship with these guys became Raymond Chandler's actual kind of like advisor and like would take Raymond Chandler to the parts of LA Raymond Chandler wasn't allowed to go to black parts um took him to clubs he was hired by studios to get actors out of trouble and so later uh you get you know when the book about the Maltese Falcon is written the character Sam Spade shows up who's this wizened L.A., you know, West Coast detective. And, you know, Sam being the first aide and Spade, a kind of a derogatory term for black folks used at the time, was a wink and a nod to Sam Marlowe, who also inspired Philip Marlowe. And, like, these writers were such friends with this guy that the two archetypical detectives that we think of were actually inspired by a black man. So I just... I, I took a long way around going from Count of Monte Cristo to explain the existence of Sam Marlowe. Man, once you said the guy's name was Sam Marlowe, I was like, oh, please let that be where this is going. Yeah. I was really hoping. So that that's a great, I, I love that. Since we've sort of touched on it, I think the way this show deals with race is actually really deft because they could have gone a couple of routes, right? They could have just whitewashed things and just not dealt with it at all. They could have done some anachronistic colorblind casting, which would be a choice, but I think you would lose the opportunity to confront what racial issues really were in Los Angeles in the late 1940s. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we tend to think of, for some reason, even though this is obviously untrue, I feel like sometimes in kind of the, just our public memory, like, well, segregation is the 50s. And in the early 1940s, we punched the shit out of the most racist empire in the world. So we were good. Right. And we kind of forget that, like, against that backdrop is, you know, us being pretty shitty, <laughs> putting Japanese in internment camps and, you know, of course, all the Jim Crow laws and everything else. Like, it gets sort of forgotten. And I love the way this show is like, no, no, we're going to portray kind of Los Angeles in this era as it more like it was. So when you see a person of color, like they, the way that people interact with them, the way they, they, the, the strata they occupy in the world is fairly true to life, I think. And I think that adds a lot of weight to the show that otherwise wouldn't be there. Yeah. One of the best episodes, one of the later episodes inspired by Walter Mosley um, with Fearless Jones. 
And um, that's what Bill Nunn and Giancarlo Esposito, um, Bill Nunn is Fearless Jones and Giancarlo Esposito is his partner uh, and kind of sidekick, Paris, but who's also the lead. And so, but yeah, that episode uh, is a favorite one of mine. I'm curious. So the, the the golden episode that I was alluding to earlier is a episode called Red Winds, and it's the one Philip Marlowe episode. But playing Philip Marlowe is Danny Glover. Oh, interesting. And it's that's the episode that's missing from the YouTube playlist, and it was the last episode they filmed. Apparently, Danny Glover got an Emmy nod from that role, and the only way to view it is if you buy the hard copy DVDs of fallen angels so that's something that i have to do i have to track that down but yeah i'm very curious to see how race is handled in that episode and i read an article and i think it's not race agnostic i think they are acknowledging acknowledging like all right so philip marlowe is black how does that affect this detective's approach right because it's going to restrict the kind of things he has access to and the way people are going to talk to him yeah it would affect his investigation for sure yeah you can't just like Tell me what you know. Like you gotta, you know, um, you gotta use different tactics if you are uh, in a in a black body. Yeah. Getting back to the Fearless Jones one that I did watch, I thought it was really interesting. So because they, it opens with this scene that's unfortunately all too familiar of him being harassed by this pair of white cops and probably about to be killed or injured very badly before Bill Nunn intercedes yeah uh kills the two cops we assume they're dead we don't really see but they they and they take off yeah and what i loved about that was from a storytelling perspective was that i thought the entire thing was then going to be about that incident and it's not like that's just how they met yeah uh the rest of the episode is a different story in a different location involving different stuff i kept going like oh this is going to catch back up with them right that like you know they killed these two cops and it's gonna nope Nope, it's just part of the like the the patchwork of this storytelling world that they live in. And it's like you said, there were no forensics back then, so you know, it's one of the boons, I guess, of the of that situation is like, oh well we killed these cops. Well, no one saw it, so let's hightail out of here. You know, like um yeah, I love that moment and in particular because Jing uh in that moment Giancarlo Esposito, the reason he is harassed by the cops isn't just because he's a black man. He's being harassed because he's a black man in uniform. He had just come back from the war. And there are a myriad of stories of just how, you know, a lot of black, you know, soldiers who, you know, join the, you know, join the cause, fought in World War II thought, you know, were under the mistaken impression that when they came home, you know, they would be, that would almost be, they would be, you know, legitimized almost as American citizens and accepted fully as American citizens. And the opposite, of course, happened. Um, A lot of men who came home in uniform who were black were harassed at best and lynched at worst. And so that's a situation that's happening of these two officers in their uniforms um, basically deciding to kill this black man in his. 
and it's it's a great it's a great opener for an episode like yeah. it says it says so much and and of course like it also explains the friendship rock solid friendship of our two detectives yeah well I, what i love about the rest of the story is how it really plays with a uh, the concept of a femme fatale mm-hmm. which is such a noir trope yeah um and they're they're there to meet you know the um oh gosh what's her name it's been a while since i watched it delithia or it's delitha something like that i it's yeah something like that i should i should brush up on what her name was yeah but uh, again true like noir femme fatale like you know the characters are all in love with her she is scheming behind the scenes yeah and working her own angle especially again as a woman in the 40s having less access to things and as a black woman in the 40s even less yeah yeah it's but it's so cool because it up oh, go ahead no i was gonna say her point of view is completely valid what the hell is this it's supposed to be in there he said my contract's in there damn it liar the- doll i'm asking you a question no, you hold on you watch how you talk to her you see she upset she's upset she's upset damn it i'm gonna ask you again it's the gun that johnny used to kill the guy that sliced his lip how you know that because he told me about it one night when he was blind drunk and trying to get some Felix, are you hearing what she's saying? Did you hear what she just said? Yeah. Johnny tried to mess up my baby's life. We can take that gun and trade it to Johnny for my contract. What? She wants to be free, Paris. We got to help her. Set up a meeting for tomorrow. You give him that gun, he'll set me free. Well, maybe I should go with you, Delita. No, that's all right. Well, why not? Because too many people make Johnny nervous. Fearless is all I need. Her point of view of, you know, the Pat- Fearless Jones, who's, you know, his name is Fearless Jones. Like, that's a superhero name. Um, you know, he's so in love with this woman and, you know, uh, a typical approach to that story is just like, oh, she's ungrateful. And it's like, no, she's very aware of she lo- he loves my body, you know, but he doesn't know me and I don't owe him anything <laughs> like, you know, I'm I'm in this for my own survival, because as you, as we've alluded to, yeah, black woman, what are her choices in that time? What are her choices? And so, yeah, like her point of view of like, I'm going to take care of myself. Makes yeah, She uses her body as a weapon for sure, you know, to get what she wants. And, you know, the, the show is not suggesting that that's a good thing. You know, it's just the advantage she has. Yeah. So she's using it. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the noir thing. It's just like, you know, you, it, people in desperate situations, the more, the more desperate, the more want. And the more want, the more danger. And 
uh, the more danger you have yourself an interesting plot. And the thing about that episode that I love too is like they aren't established. This is the origin story. Like it's not until the end of the episode after dealing with this woman that they both love after both being kind of tricked, you know, and like, you know, duped at the end and left with each other. Do they realize, hey, you know, maybe we ought to go into this detective business, you know? Like, right. Um, and that, and like, that's a, that's another thing that Walter Mosley likes to do. He likes his accidental detectives, which I, which I love too. Like, uh, Ezekiel Rollins is very similar in that regards. Yeah, there's definitely comedic versions of this, like the Schmo detective, where like the the really funny version would be something like the Big Lebowski, where he is drawn into a plot, you know, not because he's smart or a detective, but you know, he just want hit the the best way I've heard that defined is that the the detective, quote unquote, in that story, is not trying to solve a mystery; they're trying to get out of one. <laughs> it's like just leave. I need to solve this problem so I can be left alone. Yeah, it's such a... The Big Lebowski is such a beautiful film. I'm a big Coen Brothers fan. I wasn't always. That was... They grew on me. Um, yeah. You know, I think when I was younger, definitely in college, I was like, oh, this is... You know, I think their films... I consider the films to be extremely erudite. And I don't know at what point it snapped, and I was just like, oh, I get it. <laughs> like, you know, oh, I get what you're doing. Oh, you guys! You guys love making films. It's yeah. It's sort of dumb shit done smart. <laughs> it is uh, how I would put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Big Lebowski is uh, is that to perfection. Yeah, North North by Northwest is a more serious version of something like that. Where again, you got yeah. a protagonist who's like sucked into a plot unwittingly. Yeah, um, that's a good. Yeah. Part, oh, that's a great. Like they are mirror images of each other. Funhouse mirror image of just like instead of the suave debonair Cary Grant, you know who's who as the story goes along basically becomes James Bond, basically employed by the government to become a spy because he's so adept at it, as opposed to the dude who's just like <laughs> he wants his rug and it uh, really tied the room together. Man. <laughs> oh, that's um, a great Jeff Bridges. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, I I got to do an episode on that movie. It's so good. Uh, did you ever play, while we're kind of just still chatting about this stuff, did you ever play L.A. Noir the game? I did. I was just talking about it, actually. I'm in the midst of... It's, all, it's very early. These things can always fall apart, but we're, I'm in the midst of uh, developing a noir game myself, so... Oh, cool, man. I hope it comes through. So do I. So do I. We really, uh, really like the story that we've created. L.A. Noir, for, for people who don't know, was a game, I think came out in about 2013. And, it, you know, you're playing a detective and you're doing all the, like, you know, going through warehouses and shooting goons stuff you would expect from a noir video game. But the, the neat thing it did was you're also doing the investigative work. So you're finding clues. And you're, the key thing it did was you were interrogating suspects who were actors that had been mo-capped. Yeah. So you were trying to read their facial expressions and you would have to figure out, like, are they lying to me or not? So great. And uh, pretty neat. I love that game so much. I played that game multiple times. And I'm not a... Uh, I haven't played video games in a while. That was one of the last I played. I'm one of the few video game players who play for story. 
Um, oh, that's me. Oh, great. Um, we are, my friend who I was talking about this with yesterday, as a matter of fact, we were like, oh, we're, the, we're in a small group of people, we feel. Maybe it's much larger than we realize, but, um, you know, Rockstar Games made L.A. Noir and Rockstar Games, they're known for the Grand Theft Auto games and like, you know, open world, you can, it's chaos. You can steal cars, run through drive-through buildings, shoot people, random people. And I can understand the fun of that, but for me, you can't, you couldn't do that in L.A. Noir. Like you could try but the whole point of L.A. Noir was like, no, if you really want to progress the game, you have to patiently interrogate these people and watch these incredible performances by these, you know, uh, it was a favorite game of mine. Like, oh, I know that actor. It's like, oh, that's that guy from Mad Men. Right. Oh, there's that other guy from Mad Men. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's that dude from The Cosby Show. Um, like seeing these character actors reading their facial expressions, reading anxiety, reading, seeing people like do, you know, who's small, who's big, like people looking in the corner of their, you know, corner of uh, their eye. And like, you know, after they tell you something, it's like, oh, that's shifty. All right. How about, yeah, uh, I'm gonna be aggressive right now. And that whole game, I really wish like, you know, as many halos as there are or whatever. I wish that was a game that just kept going with. I fucking love that game. It was done by a, a. It was co-done by Rockstar with another company called LA or Team Bondi that I think did not. They disbanded or something happened. There was a lot of drama around the production of that thing, so it, which explains why there wasn't a, a sequel. But it, it harkens back to this show, getting back to Fallen Angels in a way, because again, a big part of that investigation is like, I just got to figure out on a hunch is this guy being honest or not. I don't have any, you know, UV light. I don't have a lab to send things to. You know, it's this is all I got is my intuition and my ability to read people. And that leads to so much unnecessary tragedy in in these stories that are depicted in Fallen Angels. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know if we've really investigated uh, using that term. Like, there's something, the reason that, you know, whoever uh, had the first, had, first had the idea of, you know, let's do L.A. Noir or saying like let's do the show fallen angel an anthology anthology show you know there's something very alluring about the time of post-war america and there's a the facade of a sturdiness of identity you know you and like that's what i love about it like you know la noir fallen angels you have your detective they're wearing the fedora and they're talking in that you know affected spat you know fast urban dialect you know like you know, so what do you know? Tell me what's going on. You know, like, they're, they're speaking like that. And that's all fun to play with. But under the surface, there's a real sense of loss and changing of identity. And that's also, I think, especially for this time right now, I think there's something really important about that. There's something really fascinating and draw, it draws me in. I'm just like, yeah, these people conformity was a thing and they're busting out of the seams they are busting out of the scenes of civility and and the niceties of that era and the aesthetics kind of just highlight that even more the prettier the scene the more chaos is happening internally with all the actors and characters in the stories 
Yeah, I definitely see that. I, you know, you talked about people busting out of the seams and like societal norms were so strong in the 40s about you know, you, this is what you are supposed to be, but not just, you know, based on your gender, your race, your where you fit in society, where you live, what job you have, all of those things like there's a way you're supposed to act, what you're supposed to wear, how you're supposed to be. And anything that deviates from that is like enough to kickstart a whole mystery. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I got relatives that are, you know, my parents were born in the forties. My grandmother is God bless her still alive at 101. Oh, and you know, you talk to them about this era and like there, you can see there's some of that mindset, you know, that's still there of like, this is, you know, you, you have to be what you're supposed to be. There's, there's just a way you are supposed to be. And it is so powerful and overriding. Um, and like you said, in these stories, it's all about finding the cracks in that stuff. And that's where it gets real interesting. Yeah. Jazz was a thing. People are going to drink. People are going to co-mingle, you know, like the, the things that human beings do are going to happen. And a detective's job. Yeah. He's, he lives in the cracks. You know, these noir stories, noir stories, they live in the cracks as you pointed out. And so there's something um, about why I think we'll always go back to that period, you know, to see like those cracks are even more pronounced. Yeah, I love the kind of human stuff in these. And I think a a good place to kind of start bringing this to a close is the episode I watched with uh, Bruno Kirby. Oh, he's kind of like this hotel detective. Oh, yeah, I love that. one. And out of the ones I this is the one directed by Tom Hanks and he appears in it briefly. But he's trying to protect this girl who is on the run from her criminal boyfriend. Who's she's staying at the hotel, and so the detective, you know, he eventually he they, the bad guys are thwarted. This is one of the relative happy endings, right. in the in this canon. But it ends with this very nice human quiet moment where he doesn't get the girl, but she says, "Look, just stay here with me till I fall asleep." Yeah, and he does. Stay with me for a while, Tony. I could maybe sleep if you were here. Sure. Nothing for me to do anyway. I don't know why they pay me. Yeah, And there's something very much like once you kind of, like I said, you bust past all these societal things, it's like we're all just people desperate to, you know, for love and connection and just to feel safe. And this moment of these two people just sharing that room for the night platonically says a lot. Yeah. And um, I love that episode, too. And I love that, again, Bruno Kirby, you know, um, talk about another uh Another one of those great character actors um, who gone before his time. If you don't know him, he's if you don't know who he is, he's the third guy from City Slickers, the one who kind of sounds like Joe Pesci. Yeah, uh, he was third guy from City Slickers. He was in the flashback. He's in Harry Met Sally. Harry Met Sally. He was in The Godfather um, in the flashback scenes with Robert De Niro. He's uh, oh yeah, and two yeah yeah he's in. He's Clemenza. That's He's right. Clemenza. Yeah, um, like he was 
you've seen him. He was just like a character actor in a bunch of things, but never really got a chance to be the lead. And seeing him here be, you know, this charismatic, streetwise, he's got a, you know, like a, you know, uh, you don't fuck with him kind of energy, if I can curse for a second. That was the energy that he, you know, he's just oozing of like, oh yeah, this dude is seeing it all, and he's seen a lot of dark stuff. And this woman has seen a lot of dark stuff, but for some reason, in this quiet moment, they can see the human in each other and the softness in each other. And to me, that's the most romantic thing. It's never about the kissing of the... It's about... Maybe this says something about me and my relationship, but like, you know, as I get older, I'm like, yeah, when we're just sitting on the couch, like, sometimes the TV isn't on. We're just, you know, sitting, (laughs) you know? Um, those quiet moments and to know like that's where the episode lands it lands in that quiet moment it's like ooh that is that is some deep love he the horribleness that he committed to protect her for that quiet moment is really a deep romantic love (laughs) and like you know that kind of juxtaposition that keeps me coming back to noir yeah well Tarek, as we're kind of rounding in here to the end, uh, any uh, kind of closing thoughts on why you think um, people should revisit Fallen Angels? Since I imagine a lot of us uh, have, this would be our first time encountering it. Um, outside of just the the immense talent that's a part of the show that we that we're talking about, I think in this moment of political polarization, there's always something. The lesson to me again is about like from noir is it's like if you leave if you let your desperate situation take you away from your identity and your morals it never leads to anywhere good and those lessons are rife in fallen angels and i think it's just something we could all take a little bit now just like yeah how about you know we don't need to you know uh i don't believe in um scarcity Scarcity creates desperation, and we don't need to be desperate with each other. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, uh, Tark, if uh, people want to find you, where can they find you? Oh, you can find me on the socials. Uh, you can find me at on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok at Tarek R. Davis. It's T-A-R-I-K-R Davis, D-A-V-I-S. And I just want to echo, please go follow him and uh, watch his shows, listen to his podcast, which is incredible. Uh, Again, Brothers from Another Planet. Uh, If you like this show, uh, you guys know what to do because you've heard a podcast before. But please go where you heard it, uh, drop it a review. If you want to send us feedback, send it to at NostalgiumPod. That's our our handle on Twitter. We're also on Instagram, so find us there. Uh, If you have thoughts on this episode or some of our recent ones, which include... Uh, we just did Masters of the Universe and DuckTales and Saved by the Bell recently. Coming up, we've got My So-Called Life uh, and Rugrats and uh, a few other things I'm working on. So I'm really excited to bring those to you. So if you have thoughts about those things, send them our way. And uh, until next time, that is one more entry in the Nostalgium Arcanum. I just don't understand who shot you. The only person clever enough to defeat Ducktective is... (gasps) Ducktective!
You had a twin brother all along? That's the big twist we were waiting for? What a rip-off! I predicted that like a year ago. 